Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hospice News Elevate podcast. I'm Holly Vossel, reporter for Hospice News, and today's topic will focus on how hospice frontline staff has fared in recent years during the pandemic, along with ways that employers can work and retain this workforce. Here with me today, we have Caitlin Berry, she's a nurse practitioner at Advocate Aurora Health Hospice, which is based in Wisconsin. Hi, Caitlin. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I think that we're just going to start things off by talking a little bit more about what it means to be a frontline worker in hospice. So first, Caitlin, why don't you just kind of walk me through your experience in hospice and, and what really drew you to caring for individuals at the end of life? Sure. I initially experienced hospice care as a family member of a loved one. My grandmother died when I was 12, was very close with her, and she was able to have a very good death at home, um, surrounded by her her family. And that was just a very significant experience for me. So I went into the field of oncology when I graduated as a new nurse and started working on a very busy and intense hematology oncology floor. And it was such a world of difference. coding patients with advanced cancer, discharging patients home who were clearly very ill but didn't necessarily have like a medical reason to stay on the floor, giving chemo to people that were were so close to the end of their life. And that was really jarring. I vividly remember doing an IV site care, changing the dressing on an IV for a patient and the patient just started screaming because he was so frail and so ill that when I picked up the dressing, the top layer of his skin came off and I was just horrified because we were talking about sending him home and he came back and died a week later. So it was just a very, a very informative experience, shall we say. So after doing that for a few years, I transitioned into hospice care and that was just a very, very different place to be. It was very honest. My patients knew that they were ill and we were actually doing things to address the, the problems that they were really facing, not doing things just to help us feel better as clinicians. I really fell in love with the field. It demanded a very high level, and it demands a high level of IQ and EQ. You need to be very, very autonomous. You develop wonderful relationships with patients and families, and you can go from being a very custodial care nurse to a critical care nurse in the home setting in the, the blink of an eye. You also get really good feedback on your work, especially immediately, either your conversation, which is your intervention of choice in palliative care often, you can get a pretty immediate visceral reaction whether you did that well or not. So it was a wonderful field to go into. It is a wonderful field. Yeah. So I worked as a hospice RN case manager for years, and then I've been doing inpatient hospice care for five years, and I just very recently transitioned into a new role as a nurse practitioner for the same organization. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, those personal experiences and in, in life and kind of meld into that professional career path for a lot of professionals in hospice, just from what I've garnered um, and talking with a lot of providers and clinicians, that personal experience with someone at the end of life can really resonate and, and lead to those roles. So you, you started mentioning your career pathway and some of those roles that you've had with your organization. You want to kind of walk me through how your current role differs from your previous ones and, and sort of how you led through that trajectory? So I've been an RN in the hospice world for oh nine or ten years now. Um, the first chunk of that was as a home hospice case manager, so doing a lot of boots on the ground work in homes, nursing homes, hospitals, anywhere patients live is where I went. When I decided to go back to school, I wanted a job with better work-life balance, such a you know buzz phrase these days. 
Um, and so I went into inpatient hospice nursing just because I had more of a start and stop to my day and better boundaries. And so I've been doing that for five years and I did that throughout the pandemic as well while I was in grad school. And I just started, I've been in my new role for about a month. I'm a nurse practitioner for the same organization which I was doing inpatient hospice for. So I've been doing a lot of face-to-face visits, kind of consultations for symptom management. Right now I'm just learning the ropes. So I do a lot of observing other clinicians do do these things and attend more meetings than, you know, I than I ever expected to get to in my life. <laughs> so mm-hmm. All right. Well thank you for like walking us through that that journey. And you mentioned the importance of, of work-life balance and, and you sort of shifted through roles. And I can't help but bring up that burnout is kind of one of those leading reasons that a lot of hospital clinicians will have left the field along with retirement, um, increased stress and financial factors coming into play as far as compensation. What do you think are some of the reasons that keep frontline workers doing their line of work in hospice? What kind of keeps them motivated and going? I think many of them see their work as meaningful and important and valued, at least by their patients and their coworkers, if not necessarily um, by their larger organization. Mm-hmm. And I think that that drive is very, very important. Where I worked personally as an inpatient hospice nurse, it was it's very intense. Our length of stay is short and people are passing away quite frequently. I think in part due to that very intense environment, most of my coworkers, at least on the nursing side, work part-time just to give themselves a little bit more distance and work-life balance. And I think that's really important to be able to do. A lot of us really enjoy and value the people that we work with and that keeps us going as well. And, and finally, and I think this is somewhat unfortunate, but it's also very much reality. There's a knowledge that was really heightened during the pandemic that if you didn't show up, <laughs> There was nobody to take your place. The staffing during it was, you know, there are no words kind of to describe what we were doing at times. Mm-hmm. And so you were, you were going because what was going to happen if, if you if didn't, you didn't. Go? Yeah. I've heard the phrase, you know, you only get one chance to provide that care at the end of life for these patients as far as hospice is, is concerned. So I think that really speaks to your, your point of if you're not there, that pressure of, of that heart for that work is, is definitely an important element mm-hmm. and, and feeling valued in that line of, of frontline work and hospice and patient facing work. That's an important part of retention from what we're hearing so far. Now, the, the problem with that is a lot of providers, you know, struggle to offer this competitive pay as far as that feeling valued financially. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what are some ways that um, if you could kind of give advice to these employers, what would be some of the ways that they could attract and, and keep their clinical staff to, to make sure that they feel valued if they're unable to kind of provide that competitive compensation? That's a really good question. My my pie in the sky hope would be <laughs> like maybe your salary isn't the highest in the world, but you offer paid family leave and help with childcare, which I know is part of, you know, overall compensations they struggle with. But Hospice is an overwhelmingly female workforce. It also has a lot of women of color, especially, and these are groups that were disproportionately pulled out of work by the pandemic. I think we're just seeing that we need this. So even if your organization can't provide that, advocating for a country in which we offer this to people and we see them as fully rounded beings is really important. 
I think dreaming even a little bit smaller, some of the jobs that are hardest to fill are our CNA roles. And it is difficult to be a CNA in hospice care. The work is intensely physical. You are often alone. And you need reliable access to a vehicle for the vast majority of these, these jobs. That's a reliable access to a vehicle is a privilege. And it's one that we we just kind of assume that they're going to have. So something like that would be good. But on the more realistic side, I think if you're able to staff a little bit more rationally, not staffing at the very edge, you will keep your staff around and you won't have that turnaround. You won't be relying on travelers. And even smaller, if none of that is possible, I honestly think a lot of the skills that we as palliative in-hospice clinicians are expected to use really mirror, mirror that, that we should see in our leadership as well. So learning to listen to your staff without an agenda or showing what you need to be done is, is really important, especially when our staff is just experiencing, we're witnessing a lot of suffering even more than we usually do, and that's really hard. Yeah. You need to respond to the emotion that the staff are eliciting and fully understand root of their concern rather than just thinking that you do and you already have a solution and don't worry about it guys we got this covered if they're expressing it to you maybe they don't feel your solution is really working and please fill out through to ask more questions to understand what the concern is and if your staff aren't bringing you their concerns or their potential solutions it's a huge red flag because they either have no faith in you to do anything about it or they don't think you're going to listen to them at all and that just speaks to a level of disengagement that is not going to bode well for or any staffing and believing staff when you talk to them like, and creating change based on their feedback. That's really empowering. I've seen a lot of issues flagged by, by our nurses or CNAs or any frontline clinician um, that's kind of waved off and dismissed until suddenly it's a very big problem and then we really do address it. And it's just so frustrating because you think, oh my gosh, we've been talking about this for a year, but now we're dealing with it because the problem that we said was going to happen has actually happened. Oh, good. Yeah. And sort of being more proactive rather than reactive with that staff engagement and communication right? issue. Yeah. yeah. So as far as, you know, when they're kind of running and, and managing those caseloads can, like you were mentioning, you know, making sure that patients or you said staff aren't stretched to the, the edge. I think if I'm paraphrasing correctly. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. That was very long. You can tell I have lots of opinions. No, I, I think that those opinions kind of speak to the, the issues that are leading to the, the workforce shortage. So yeah, no, carry on. <laughs> but um, <laughs> as far as making sure that they're not pushing their staff to the brink among these shortages, as more clinicians maybe reach that retirement or seek out other opportunities in other fields, what would you say to these hospices as far as the one thing, the single most important thing that they can do to support their staff? You know, if they're having, they're facing all these issues and, and they're mm-hmm. developing those efforts, what can they do and maybe in the short term now is the most important thing you think? I think just whenever a hospice or an agency is deciding to implement a new change or a program, getting staff feedback and buy-in immediately and asking if this will truly and significantly improve the care of patients or the experience of the staff. We know that our agencies operate on a finite pot of money. And so we see Mm -hmm. anything that you spend money on as money not spent elsewhere. I think higher up, you see line item budgets and this pot of money is for that. 
But as a frontline worker, we just see that money spent on item X as a money that wasn't spent on something more important, item Y. And staff are also very good at evading changes that they don't really feel are helpful. So you may do a big intervention, but if you don't get buy-in, you're not using your money efficiently and, and you're kind of wasting it. So involving your staff and then truly looking at any changes through that lens, because your staff really want to take care of your patients. So if you take care of them by considering their time and their needs and their feedback, they're going to take care of your patients. Right. So if you're going to implement something that flows into their workflow or processes or documentation better make sure that they not only understand that change, but see it as an improvement or efficiency in their work as well. Yes. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And I think that that's definitely an important element to improve as far as, or include as far as supporting that frontline staff. So you touched on this a bit in your comments before, as far as how the the COVID-19 pandemic has really impacted those workers dealing with patients on the front lines. But as far as just asking about how the pandemic has impacted uh, hospice frontline workers in particular, some of the issues that mm-hmm. they faced in um, their line of work. I think one is just that you're seeing a lot of deaths that didn't need to happen either for a very long time, people who were otherwise healthy and, and got COVID and died, or even deaths that didn't need to happen as soon as they did. So seeing a lot of patients that are elderly and frail, but still had time and suddenly their life is ending sooner than they expected. That's really painful. As a clinician prior to the pandemic, it was always sad when we had a patient whose death was very seemingly accidental or preventable in nature. And during the pandemic, you just watched that explode. And that's really hard. Even now we're still seeing those COVID deaths and we're also seeing some of the more indirect follow-up from COVID deaths among younger people due to substance abuse disorders um, or deaths among people who are now afraid of healthcare and their cancer has been diagnosed too late. It's a lot of fallout and suffering to be in the middle of that didn't need to occur. I think we're also, everybody has been stretched thin in the pandemic and that includes our patients, our families, their visitors, visitor restrictions, if you're in an inpatient setting, the mask requirements, just the erosion of public trust in healthcare workers. We already meet people in a volatile situation, an emotionally tense one, and now it's even more so. So I, prior to the pandemic, I don't think I knew anyone in healthcare that hadn't been physically threatened or yelled at. Um, most of us have been physically harmed um, by patients as well to some degree or another, and it's just getting worse and this really wears on you after a while that's it's a lot of hard challenges that yeah yeah just it takes that rippling effects that yeah taking a toll and like dialing up what are some of the lessons that employers can kind of take away from those experiences that frontline staff has had and what can they take away from that and improve upon i have been thinking about this and i Honestly, don't know. I know that there are a lot of very smart people out there that have lots of different answers to this question, but it almost feels like we're just so still stuck in it and that I'm still, and I think a lot of us are still very much processing and reflecting on what was asked of us, what we had to do and what we had to cope with for the past few years. Mm -hmm. So 
to come up with a lesson, I I don't feel capable of that. I wish I did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Sort of a, a lot of different areas to to address yeah. at once. Yeah. Well, I think just switching gears a little bit, you've seen this sort of rise in regulatory scrutiny, honing focus on the hospice industry, and that can be among those things that can have an effect on frontline workers. Are you seeing any additional maybe compliance pressures adding weight to uh, labor issues for frontline hospice staff? And maybe how are you working through those? I think the biggest issue faced in hospice is the documentation burden. Um, Mm -hmm. We know as clinicians it's important for our patient care. It's also important that our agency gets paid. Um, But some of the documentation requirements just seem onerous, silly, or not helpful. And it leads to nurses just spending hours charting, which they're doing outside of their typical working day often and is absolutely contributing to to burnout. And also, I think, to nurses leaving hospice in particular, because if you work in a hospital, you aren't doing this volume of, of documentation. This is definitely a hospice-specific, or I shouldn't say hospice-specific, but it's certainly not in all fields of nursing to this degree. You know, we all know the electronic health systems that were supposed to help us document better and faster really have just made us document more and more with much more of a challenge of finding what's actually useful. Working around, I haven't seen a ton of workarounds right now. It feels so often that things are just placed more and more onto clinicians' plate, and we just don't really know how to take them off. And so mm-hmm. that's just really unfortunate. I, when I was a home hospice case manager, our care plans were short, but they were very, very personalized to the patient. It was a lot of free text about the symptom and the problem and your plan for when it didn't work. And now our care plans are huge and long and have so many interventions that I couldn't possibly find what I wanted easily if I had quite a chunk of time. So mm-hmm. it's just very challenging. And again, I don't I don't really know what a lot of the solutions are other than trying to help our staff work more efficiently within the labyrinthine documentation systems that we've we've given them. Right. I'm just trying to find those. The, the silver bullet that will kind of tie it all together and um, yeah. make those efficiencies more, better use of time for them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No one wants to work where, outside of the clock, I, I think. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's where agencies almost feel like they have their hands tied. They want to justify why this patient is getting hospice or continuing to receive hospice care. It feels like a an issue that rises above the individual employer and it goes to how we have structured our Medicare hospice benefit and, Yep. Yeah. Changing that would be great, but I, I imagine that's not an easy fix. <laughs> yeah. I, um, I think we've had a lot of talks with providers about what could modernizing the hospice benefit is a term that we've come across in that way of just sort of how to assess that eligibility for patients and that documentation, like you said, is really key to proving that, but it can also sort of add that, like you mentioned, add that weight onto workers. So overall, just to wrap things up here today in a nice little package, uh, what would be your advice to hospice employers if they're really trying to retain their frontline staff? You mentioned, you know, engaging and communicating with them, but what are some of the advice, other pieces of advice that you would give employers? I'd say that overall, people are not going to stay at a place where they do not feel heard, respected, and just valued. Um, and we have a very competitive labor market right now. So 
you don't even need to stay in healthcare if you don't want to be in healthcare anymore. And I think a lot of the overall almost marketing efforts I see towards potential employees often revolve around, oh, this work is so meaningful, or do you want to make a, work, make a difference? You know, work for us. I mean, of course, I want to make a difference. That's why I work in healthcare. But after and during the past few years, if that's all your argument is, then I'm really unmoved by it. It almost feels like you're taking advantage of my goodwill. So I would say, like, making it really clear how you give your frontline staff a seat at the table and actually giving them a seat at the table where big decisions are made, where their voice is heard and valued, and not just dismissing them as, oh, my gosh, they are here with more problems. And, we, you know, make sure that they know that their solutions are valued, too. Making it clear that you see them as people that live in a world outside of work and not just workers to be to be managed and eked out every inch of productivity and that can just be in in little small things like allowing them to have a little bit more flexible scheduling or a later start time if they need to get their kids to school and just making it very clear that you see them as as humans that exist in in the wider world also if you're doing a good job taking care of your patients and addressing the, the social determinants of health around them I think that would really be very much appealing to a lot of our staff Almost every nurse I know has purchased food for patients that can't afford food. How are you helping helping that? So maybe I don't quite feel so much pressure pressure to address that need rather. So going beyond like, don't you want to make a difference and showing like how you're going to make a difference in my life as an employee so that I want to work for you and do my best for for you and for your patients. I think that's a really valuable insight to kind of end on. And I really do appreciate you sharing these thoughts, Caitlin, with our listeners. It's really been interesting walk to dig into some of these frontline pressures with you. Thank you. Yeah. And, and just thanks to everyone listening in on this topic. Uh, there, we always have more in store. So take care for now and stay tuned for more episodes from our Hospice News Elevate podcast.